0: Good morning and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Philbu. In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Now we're picking up with verse 27, where we'll find arriving in Jerusalem, Paul. He is met with hostility and suspicion due to the rumors that have been circulating that he has forsaken Jewish customs. Because of this, a, a riot of sorts erupts in the temple, Temple, pardon me, and it leads to his arrest. But in his bid to defend himself, Paul requests to address the crowd. And speaking in Aramaic, he recounts his devout upbringing and his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And this personal testimony, well, it stirs up the crowd. It reveals his transformed faith. But as the dust settles, it's clear that tensions still remain. Paul is beaten and punished until he reveals, surprise, surprise, that he is a Roman citizen. Then suddenly, those who were beating him were worried because they've broken the law by doing that. We're going to discuss that and more today. Today is Friday, August 25th, and as I have said, you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor uh, Phil Boo uh, of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Now, are you curious to know more about the incredible translating and publishing work they're up to? I talk about them all the time you should swing by their sort of digital home base at lhfmissions.org. Trust me, it's worth the click. You can go there and learn how they have shared over 4 million books in the, uh, in the Lutheran faith. And they've shared those around the world without charge. You can also see the map of the over 100 countries they serve. So lots of good work being done by our sponsor, Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Check them out. Well, this morning, you're probably wondering who's joining me to discuss this text. And today we have the Reverend Stephen Tice. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Tice, and welcome back to the program. Good morning. Thank you. How are things with you? Oh, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How are things in New Wells, Missouri? Are, are you nice and toasty down there like the rest of the country?
1: We are nice and warm and uh in between showers as well
0: so that's part of the oh, challenge yeah. okay okay yeah that's us too we actually have a beautiful day up here in minnesota but we're a little bit more north of you guys so well i tell you what uh-huh. um you know i'm glad to have you on the show today we're going to be looking at a very interesting topic as we continue our journey with paul through the book of acts but i think it's a good idea for us to start in prayer and brother i invite you to lead us in that prayer certainly
1: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty and gracious God, thanks to you for your many blessings poured out upon us. You are the one who orders creation and appoints rulers and times for nations. At one time, you appointed the Roman Empire, which allowed free trade and commerce, a common language, and travel. Today, we think that that's common and always was the case, but it's not. It was a time in history where the word was free to move. And at the same time, governments and accountability remain. Lord, human beings don't always get things right. In fact, more often than not, we'll get them wrong. But in your great love in Christ, you have provided for us security and rescue, no matter what the situation As Paul himself professed your truth, enable us to profess that truth, not for our sake, but for the good of others, and to honor our Lord Jesus as we speak his name, that others might live. We ask all this in the name of our Savior Jesus, who protects and cares for his Church at all times.
0: Amen. Amen, brother. Well, our text begins sort of in the middle of the chapter. We are starting with verse 27. And 27 begins with these words when the seven days were almost completed. And then it continues. It might be a good idea to let people know the seven days that are almost completed. What are those about? What's what, 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 what seven days?
1: Yeah, we have a, a time when a, a promise had been made, an oath taken, and there was a, a fasting and prayer connected with these oaths in God's history of the people of Israel and those who were involved with what was to happen. And as you look at where Paul is, as he's in transit or about to be in transit, he is he's the one who has the authority. And as they prepare to talk, the seven days of, of the passing of waiting are almost completed. And when that happens, Things will change, and and progress will move as the Holy Spirit enacts things. And, of course, the numeral seven is often connected to associated with God's work and God's timing in the life of the people of Israel and the history of the world. In seven days, he created the world. So we have the connection to that number seven again in this process.
0: Well it's just interesting how he you know he heads up to Jerusalem he visits James and one of the concerns that people have is that well although Paul is doing great work for the kingdom he's proclaiming the Messiah um it seems like he's abandoned all of his Jewish ways you know we've heard you know how rumors are right pastor we've we've heard that you're telling people that they don't have to do anything that Moses told them to do and so Paul mm-hmm. is undergoing this He's really, I guess, (laughs) uh, I guess he's uh, condescending to them in a way. He's undergoing this ritual, which he knows has already been fulfilled. But verse 26 says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, went into temple, giving them notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled. And that's that seven days. Uh, But little does he know... Him letting people know when the uh, seven days would be up has given someone a chance to plot against him. That's the beginning of our text today. I'm going to go ahead and read it from verse 27 through verse 36. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. They said these things, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now, I want to pause right there. That's the end of verse 32. But we see this dramatic action that, that he goes in, and the people are saying, Paul... People are complaining about you. You're teaching them to go away from the law of Moses. Just show them that you're on board by giving in to their demands and going through this ritual of purification. And when he does, it turns out that that's not even good enough for them. Now the the people are still upset with him. He hasn't appeased really anybody, and they've chased after him, and they're now dragging him um to uh, to punish him uh, boy I, I tell you paul just can't win for losing sometimes
1: no this is well this is the the thing we've talked about in the past is the darkness must attack the light but notice that paul is following the same advice he later gives to the christian churches when he says as much as is possible live at peace with all people and this is the word that jesus had shared of course with his with his original disciples Um, you know let your yes be yes your no be no and in the process paul is not assuming evil of anyone and then at the same time he's aware of the danger so we're looking at at human beings manipulating others willingness to cooperate which is you know the sinful way of the world Uh, i think it's important to remember too that Paul is doing this in the city of Jerusalem where the, the temple is still standing, where the rituals and rules still apply, and where the high priest still has authority. And so he's, in one sense, he is submitting to the government of of Israel that the Romans have established as far as the high priest and the religious things. Now, on the other hand, he's about to uh, exert his dependence upon the military and, and administrative power of Rome, and we'll see that happening. But I think as you pointed out, it might seem he's trying to acquiesce or kind of bend over backwards. What he's really trying to do is give no offense, so that there's no offense in him. The offense will be in the gospel, and that's obviously going to happen right now.
0: But of course, there was offense anyway, so he appeased some people, but it wasn't enough to quell the disturbance that, you know, he's two things. One, he's this guy who's going around teaching people to not obey the laws of Moses, and two, he's even dragging Gentiles into the temple, and, and a lot of these are misunderstandings, but no one wants to, of course, try to investigate the truth, they just want reasons to attack Paul.
1: Yeah, and, and I think as human beings we see that, we see it in our world in, in multiple different ways, and, and we as human beings are quick to jump to judgment, because that's part of our sinful fallen nature, taking over the role God hasn't given us, but we want to be in charge. And, you know, I think about Paul as a Roman citizen becomes a, a major element in this whole discussion, of course. But the Roman Empire had rules and regulations that got changed when the Republic was turned into a, well, an empire by the rule of an emperor. And, and so human beings will, will manipulate the rules to get to their own purposes. And, and so what Paul's doing is he's not manipulating the rules, but he is aware of what the rules are. And as he knows what they are, he uses them to protect his chance to proclaim the gospel. And I think we need to be aware of that today, too. You might have heard recently of various court cases in our nation where people have been accused of some behavior that's um, offensive to some, and therefore they are sued. And yet, because it's part of their, their religious protected rights, they defend themselves and say, we're not opposed to those people. We just want to be able to do what we believe. And the Roman Empire wasn't quite the same way, but I think it's important to remember that we live in a nation with rules, and the rules are meant to serve the good of the people, not just the good of the government or the good of the, even in our nation, the majority, uh, which Christians aren't. But the one who's in charge of all these things is really God himself, and and Jesus is still the, the one with all authority. So as I look at what Paul's done and what Paul's about to do, we see that Paul's being dragged out and beaten until the, well, let me use the word, law enforcement shows up and then the beating stops. Um, and when the beating stops, then the law enforcement agency takes over. And, and we see how God protects us through those appointed to reward um, those who do good and punish those who do evil.
0: Well, let's check that out. Let's see the cops showing up in verse 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, inquired who he was and what he had done and some in the crowd were shouting one thing some another and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar he ordered him to be brought into the barracks and when he came to the steps he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed crying away with him so uh before we continue so here we have paul and as you said he's He's really being rescued by the uh, law enforcement of the time. Um, they don't want an injustice to be done, but of course they're going to investigate the complaints, and that's kind of where we're at. He's He's been hauled out of the mob. They definitely, definitely do not want... Um, Uh, an uproar. That's the one thing that the Roman high councils would be very upset about is anytime there's disturbance of the peace. So they're trying their best to keep the peace, but it doesn't mean they're not going to investigate this Paul guy because clearly he's done something to cause them to up, to be an uproar, the mob like that. Um, That's where we're at.
1: Yep. And, and the, uh, the need for peace again, Pilate himself, uh, hands Jesus over because the, the, accusation is made he won't be a friend of Caesar and the people are going to riot. So Pilate, as we read in the Gospels, um, corrupts justice in the, the narrow sense to preserve the peace in the larger sense because that allows him to keep his job. And one particular man being suffering injustice wasn't a big deal with Jesus. But with Paul, we have a different situation and we're going to find out what that is pretty soon.
0: I think it's interesting too, though, that when the Tribune goes out, he finds that the people don't even know why they're upset. Or or they do know why, but they all have different reasons for being upset, none of which lend themselves to the truth. And so it's it's I just think that's striking because that is often what the modern Christian's going to to face. It's going to face persecution from people who don't have the right idea about what you believe, teach, and confess, whether you're a uh, leader in the religious uh, you know, realm, whether you're uh, just a parishioner. I think the more you live out your Christian faith, the more you're going to be persecuted, but not because people understand the truth and deny it, but because they have been misled about what we believe. And I, and I see that happening today in a smaller scale.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that you're absolutely right. And part of that goes back to the fact that, if a person is looking to be offended, they can find a reason for it. <laughs> sure. So there's a difference between us giving offense and someone taking offense. And as we look at, at what we do, then we, we remember that the instruction Christ gave us in, in loving our enemies was to allow us to have the chance to actually speak to them the word of truth rather than defend ourselves. And and there's a difference between those two. And I know We live in in a country where we are told we have rights and privileges, and we often stand on our rights, but it's important to remember that the rights of others are protected by the Constitution in our country, but what Christ tells us to do is to put others first, and that's a challenge. But at times, for the good of the gospel, we have to literally go to, "Here's here's what the law allows, here's what the law requires, and you don't know what the situation is. So I think you've made a great observation here that, people often oppose us without knowing what they're opposing.
0: Well, and that is no better illustrated than even what happens next in our text. I'm going to read to uh, the end of our chapter. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, "'May I say something to you?' And he said, "'Do you know Greek?' Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people and then there was a great hush, and he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and that's where we'll pause, right? So so before we hear what he said, he is brought into the barracks, and as soon as he asks the guy, I guess he asks him in Greek, the, uh, the tribune's like, oh, wow, you know Greek? Good, I have a question for you. I guess he got, I guess the tribune must have assumed that maybe this is this most recent rabble rouser I heard about the, the, the Egyptian who led the four thousand assassins, uh, certainly uh, it sounds like they have had uh, plenty of problems, not just from the from the Christians
1: yeah, this is again the the unrest in the Middle East that we encounter today is nothing new. It's been constant there, basically since uh, the family of Abraham separated with Ishmael and and Isaac and and the discord that came with Jacob and Esau, it's not ended ever. It um, just gets more publicity one time over another. Except for, I take that back, when Solomon was ruling for 40 years, there was peace. I take that back. Okay. Um, and as we look at, at what's going on here, you're right. There's, there is an assumption that this man somehow is connected to previous unrest. Reports have come in. And he's surprised, as you point out, that Paul speaks Greek. But we know that Paul himself, as, as explains later from the tribe of Benjamin, yet he was, even though raised... As a scholar of the Hebrew scriptures and a Pharisee, he himself had an education in a Roman colony city where he was born as a Roman citizen. So his, his knowledge and his uh, education is broad, biblically broad, but also culturally broad. And he's able to interact then because he's had a good education. And the assumption made by the centurion, or the tribune rather, is that he's a He's a uh, local guy who might be disrupting and trying to raise up a rebellion. And now he's going to find out entirely different. And Paul's first request is not, can I defend myself to you, but can I talk to the crowd? He wants to talk to the people. He knows that they're disrupted and upset, but he also knows he can speak to them from Scripture, the Hebrew Scriptures, and some will hear and the Holy Spirit will work in them. Others may close their ears. But those who can hear will have the chance to learn why he is there and what's happening.
0: Why do you think, just thinking out loud, why do you think the tribune allowed him to address the people? I mean, it seems like that might be a little unusual. But, I mean, maybe it's not. But it just seems like, I wonder why he let him do it.
1: Well, I'll I'll give two quick answers to that. One is it was the will of the Holy Spirit that it happened. (laughs) Yes, there we go. Yep. And, and the other one is because Paul clearly is not a rabble-rouser from the local community, but he is a Roman, or at least educated in a Roman community, and has come here, and now he has requested that he speak to the people. And if I might, permit me. To right. and, and so he's he's not insisted on anything, he's not demanded, he's not shouting, he's speaking calmly. So this tribune sees the man who's been brought in as rational. And it's the rest of the people who might have the bigger problem. And if he lets bluntly, if he lets Paul speak, he might find out who the real rabble rousers in town and be able to kind of collar them and slow things down.
0: That's true too. And I and I would add to that, perhaps maybe also he's looking at this as kind of a, a problem with the Jews, right? So it's these it's this yeah. Jewish group, they're upset. So this guy's speaks their language. He's one of them. Maybe they've, as you said, maybe they've misunderstood who he is or what he's about. So let's give him a shot. Yeah, I suppose, you know, again, the Bible doesn't say, and it's not really that important, but you always think through these things and go, I wonder what led up to that. But I like what you said. It's because the Holy Spirit wanted it to happen. And we're just going to get into a little bit of the beginning of his speech. So now we're at chapter 22, verse 1 from the ESV. Brothers and fathers, Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death. "...finding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished." All right, we're going to stop the action right there. We all know what happened. We were there through scriptures before, but we're going to hear it again in a minute. But yeah, he says, I was, I'm a Jew born in Cilicia, in Tarshish. I, I educated myself at the feet of this famous rabbi, and I was as passionate about the faith as you are. What an interesting but brilliant approach. He doesn't call them down for their rabble-rousing and mob violence, um, although he could. He reframes it in the sense of, I recognize that you're just passionate for what you believe, but—and of course he's going to give them some evidence on why they should believe differently—but but what a good approach. We could learn from that. Yeah. As
1: somebody pointed out to me once that if you take a look at Paul's letters, in almost all cases what he does with his epistles is he begins with words of praise and encouragement, then he addresses the areas where he sees concerns or need for improvement, gives— Clear instruction how to address them, and and then closes with words of glory and praise and thanks to God for the work others have done with him and for Christ's grace to him. And, and I see this as kind of a consistent pattern for Paul most of the time. He starts with, here's what's good and proper that's here present. And then he says, here's where corrections need to come. And the correction comes from the God who gives us strength through his son Jesus by the Spirit at work in us. And so I just reflecting on what I'd heard previously from others, he does the same thing here with his talk. He does it in Athens as well, where he begins by saying, I perceive that you are very religious. And and in so doing, he is using rhetorical skills, bluntly, that allow a group to buy into what he's going to say next, because he's already said something they're agreeing to. Now, he learned this as part of his educational process, but again, the Holy Spirit also guides him to do these things. And you and I should as pastors recognize that this is one of the things that, that we try to do. And when we preach, we even begin with the common expression, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, through so our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pull that from Paul's epistles. But it's also a way of saying, hey, this is us together as God's people. Let's look at where we are as God's people. And he does the same thing with the people of Jerusalem. He says, hey, I'm one of the group. I was educated in this city. This this uh, rabbi Famous rabbi in our community was my educator, and I was zealous as you are. And, and I find it interesting, he uses the term this way. And the early Christians used that as a, as a concept of Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so they were walking in his path, following the way, uh, which draws back to the Old Testament and the Psalms as well. So, But that's that's my initial response is he's following a pattern sure. consistent? With, yeah.
0: Well, and it's a good pattern. You know, I think sometimes because of our Lutheran tradition and our emphasis on the, uh, <laughs> the ever-present law-then-gospel sermon structure, that, that I think sometimes we, under, we, we misunderstand that I, there's a lot of nuance to reaching people with the gospel. Of course the Holy Spirit does all of the work. But it takes a little finesse for people not to have their defenses up, to appeal to places where you can agree. Uh, The examples that you gave um, are pertinent there. But just being able to befriend someone, um, just as Jesus often did, without the need to try to correct everything that they may have wrong about the faith or the world or whatever. And so that's why I just, I love that you're right. He's, He's saying, look, I'm one of you guys. Um, we're. I know you're not bad guys. I'm. I'm basically exercising forgiveness here, uh, but I want you to, in exchange, give a little ear to what I have to say. Right? Consider what I have yep. to say. If I really am who I say I am or who I was, then then you know, if I could be convinced, maybe you can too. But I tell you what, we're gonna wait before we get into what he says until after the break. So, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back we are going to keep on going through Acts 22. See you on the other side. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me this morning is the Reverend Stephen Tice. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. But before we get back, I just want to say it's great to have you all here as we dive into the depths of the Book of Acts. You know, you just being here adds that extra spark to our discussion, and I just couldn't be more grateful to be in the Word with you all today. And I'm also all ears, as you know, for any questions or thoughts you might throw my way. If you got something on your mind, shoot me an email at PastorBoo at gmail.com, or you can track me down on Facebook, too. A simple "hi" works. Just let me know that you're tuning in and also how you're catching the show. Airwaves, podcast, KFUO.org, or maybe that trusty KFUO app. Anyway, I'm all ears love to hear from you. But now back to our text, because we kind of left it right there on uh, the precipice of him about to explain to them what happened on that road to Damascus. But before we do that, anything else you want the people to know before we continue reading from the book? All right, well, hearing nothing, I'm going to keep on going then. (laughs) We're going to start with verse six. Here we go. All right. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, spoken of well by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And said to me, uh, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to uh, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. All right, we're going to pause right there. Brother, are you back with us? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, I accidentally hit my mute button before. Oh, no worries. No worries. So I I figured it was something like that's why I kept on going. So I I got a little bit through his uh, his soliloquy, right, his explanation of what the Lord did for him. Um, We've heard this before, but it's worth going through again. Uh, Take us through uh, Paul's message here.
1: Well basically what we're hearing as Paul speaks to again an audience of those who are very devout and committed and and we find this in Luke's gospel as well that when he talks about the people he talks about he identifies their spiritual condition then and the term that Luke is using is one that says these are people who were guided by the Holy Spirit even before Pentecost now we have after Pentecost and as he's he says brothers and Brothers and fathers, and now when Ananias comes, he addresses him as Brother Saul. And I thought that was particularly significant. But what he's identifying here is that Jesus is the one who says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Now, some of the people standing around here had been in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. Some of them would have known that the sign above the cross said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of Judea. And so this this term in particular connects both to the Old Testament, you know, he shall be called a, a Nazarene, a Nezer, a branch out of the stump of Jesse, but also it's the one who comes from Nazareth. So that historically they can immediately place which Jesus he's referring to. You and I hear the name Jesus and really immediately associate it with the Christ. But the name Yeshua was common among the people of Israel. Many people at that time had the name. So he identifies that Jesus speaking to him, says, I'm the one who was crucified by the Romans. And as he is talking to him, he gives great detail as his response. The others with me saw the light but did not understand the voice. And this, this you might recall, happens when Jesus is in Jerusalem and says, Father, glorify your name, and he answers from heaven, and some say a thunder, and others say an angel spoke. Luke, Luke is recounting the fact that, when God communicates directly with his people, not everyone else gets it. I think that's important for you and me to remember, too, mm-hmm. that when the Holy Spirit gives us insight, not everybody sees the same thing we see or hears the same thing we hear, because God hasn't opened their ears, or in this case, their eyes. And, and so as he's, he's speaking to Jesus, he asks, what shall I do? And the answer is, go to the place you were already headed, Damascus. You were going to arrest people following me, but there's a different plan now. Go there, and I will make it clear what it is you are supposed to do because I've already planned ahead of time what it is appointed for you to do. And he said he's gone to Damascus with letters of authority from the high priest, and now the real high priest is about to change the letters. And you and I can say that. At that point in time, they didn't know these things, but that's a great insight, I think, for you and me to remember, is that the real high priest is the one who's going to rewrite the orders, And he does this in a dramatic way with Saul, who is a zealous follower of the old way, the old covenant, and has not yet encountered the new covenant in its life and its power, and he's about to. And as baptized children of God, we often forget that we didn't start off knowing God's truth. God had to show it to us. Um, And sometimes... We've lived in such a way, we've heard the word long enough that we forget the immediate impact it has on one who's never heard it before. And, and Saul, who now becomes Paul later, is going to Jerusalem, into Damascus. He was led by hand because he couldn't see. And there Ananias approaches him. And this man, who is well spoken of by all the Judeans who live there, so he's not like he's a disreputable guy. He's res, respected as a devout believer. And he's already said to the people in Jerusalem, you're devout and you're dedicated. Another one like you was in Damascus, and he's the one that came to me and said, "The God of our fathers appointed you to know His will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from His mouth." Now Ananias is speaking in great detail that elsewhere in the gospel or in the book of Acts we haven't heard. There's more detail than we get about what Ananias says to Paul at this time. And so sometimes it's important to remember that what God wants us to know, he doesn't tell us all at once. He shows us later what we are needing to grab so that others can also share the insights that we've received, but not everybody is ready at the same time. So when Ananias comes to him and he he speaks to him, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. You and I are so used to the name being a simple label we slap on someone. In the, in the Old Testament r- rite, rite of worship, in the, the understanding of the people of God, in Jesus' day and Paul's day, the name has power. It still does. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow this is one of the things that Paul writes later. But in this context, we're saying, here's the name. The name is the name attached to the house of God, Yeshua HaMashiach. As a friend of mine puts it, Jesus, who is the anointed one. And, and in the power of that name, Paul is now going to do things. And by the way, Paul is going to get a name change, which we're never told when it happens, but it happens.
0: Right. Well, you know, one thing that's rising to the top of uh, what you're discussing for me is this idea of they hear the voice, but they don't understand it. And that's Mm. literally happening in Paul's testimony. It literally happened when he was approached Mm. by Jesus. But it's happening here, of course, where they've heard the word, they've heard the Christ, but they don't understand it. Paul is now in the place of Jesus. And as he's saying the words that Ananias spoke to him, he's basically saying that to these people, right? Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. So, we can tell paul's skill and of course the holy spirit's hand in this as these themes of coming to understand that which wasn't previously understood by faith continues even in his own message um, and it's just it's just going to be neat to see how they respond because if you don't know how it ends you might start to think well i think this is going to be one of those cases like at Pentecost where. You know, a thousand people are going to come to faith or the whole Sanhedrin or all the whole, in this case, the whole tribune are all going to be just become believers because that sometimes happens. But let's let Paul finish what he's having to say and then we'll see what happens. Starting with verse 17. Continuing, Paul says, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw Jesus saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And Jesus said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles." Up unto this word, they listened to him. But then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. All right, brother, you know, we just finished that portion. You could tell that his whole message wasn't done, but he finally said something that really hawked them off. What was it? What he has said is
1: the gifts of God are meant for more than the one nation. That the message is to be carried to the whole world. And if we read carefully throughout Isaiah's message again and again, he says, This word will go to the far islands. It will be shared, and he will bring to you a people you have not known, and they will believe in you. And the far, far corners of the earth will be drawn to you. It was, again, repeated in other apostles, I'm sorry, in other prophets. But in this case, Isaiah jumps out at me as the one who says, you know, it's, it's the far-off people that he's going to bring. The ones who have not known him will now be his children, and they'll be one with you. And Paul is really saying the same thing Isaiah said with slightly different words. And the hostility toward the idea that the Gentiles could be included is the problem. And, and as we look at this concept, people listen until they find the thing they want to react against and by the way, this isn't just in the Bible, then they start building a defense or a reaction against that which they oppose, and they stop listening. This is one of the greatest dangers that pastors in particular, but other Christians have in conversation with anyone, is that we carry on a conversation, we speak for a while, we listen, then somebody says something, and instead of hearing the rest of what they say, we stop listening and then intellectually inside our own heads, begin building our rebuttal to that which we don't agree with. And in the process, we've stopped focusing on the other and are focused on ourselves. And that's really the whole issue here. Paul is continually focused on what's the best thing for the others who need to hear about Christ, not what will get me out of trouble. And those who hear the word Gentiles, and now they've got something against which they can react and so they can unify the opposition and attack Paul without having to hear the rest of what he has to say. They have a fighting point. And that's, you know, that's exactly what's happening here. And this is Satan's plan, by the way, always, to get us to focus on our own agenda to the point that we don't hear others. And we don't bear one another's burdens in that way. We, we deny the love of Christ. We deny the Lord who bought us when we say, oh, now I can attack you. You've said the wrong thing. And that's exactly what's going on here in Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem, who you know, Paul's Paul's been told, I'm going to send you away because they won't listen to you in Jerusalem. You're a part of the opposition. Now that he's come back, they don't listen to him. Exactly what he said, what <laughs> happened.
0: Well, you know, and I'm listening to what you're saying about how we, um, we. we consider people's opinions until the point at which we don't agree and then we get distracted thinking about how we're going to respond. And I catch myself doing that all the time. I know we all do. I wonder though, if part of it, and we can't see their hearts, of course, but if that's not also, especially when it comes to hearing the message of God or Christ or anything that says, anything that might convict me, it seems like it's a defense. Like we're listening, we're listening, we're being convicted. Well, maybe Maybe we were in the wrong, maybe, and then suddenly we find something that we can disagree with, and then that gets us off the hook from having to consider the argument. So it's, I don't think it's not just, it's not just a bad habit that almost everybody does. I think it also is a sort of a defense mechanism for us not to have to bear the message of whoever it is we're listening to.
1: Oh, certainly. And I know that in my own life, what I've done is, as you're talking about, I've I've heard this thing to which I know I have a defense or a, a rebuttal, and now I'm going to win. And I'm not going to listen the rest of the way in case, as you point out, I might hear something I didn't really want to deal with. Now I can win. I can stop listening and begin the winning process, which is selfishness, obviously. And I think I think you're very correct in uh, analyzing it this way. And, and don't take this incorrectly, but as an attorney – the training attorneys are given is to find a way to present a defense for their client. Correct. Right. Okay. So we're our own number one client. We want to defend ourselves first. Paul is not his own client. Paul is an agent of the truth. And therefore Mm. what he defends is Christ Jesus and the gospel, not himself. And so his discussion is not what will get me out of trouble, but what will get Jesus attention in this case. That's, yeah I he's,
0: think he 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 certainly important. could have probably talked his way out of this a long time ago yeah i mean in yeah. in this process, these trials that he's you know going under and gonna continue to face uh all the way up until he's hauled off to go meet with the emperor uh he's gonna keep on uh, whether intentionally or by you know by inspiration of the Holy Spirit or maybe it is intentionally, but he keeps himself moving toward. Um, this process that allows him to proclaim Christ to people who he otherwise would not have had a chance to talk to.
1: Absolutely. And I think uh, in our context, it doesn't quite match up, but in the history of, of the people of Israel, what we're looking at is very clearly that the nations around them are represented especially by the Roman Empire, which was a polyglotinous and multicultural empire, multi-ethnic empire. So without... Being too presumptuous, the head Gentile is the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor rather. And so if Paul is the ambassador to the Gentiles, which one Gentile does he need to get to most of all? So he's, he's appealing to the emperor as a Roman citizen. But the whole point, we get to that down the road. But the whole point he's making is now I get to go to the capital where the empire of the nations is centered. And now I can impact more than one group of people. He's gone from town to town, from community to community. Now he's, the, the the Old Testament focus on centripetal evangelism, walk to Jerusalem, draw to the temple, draw to Solomon's kingdom, draw people to hear and see the glory of God, reversed in the New Testament to centrifugal, go out from Jerusalem. But it almost makes Rome again the point of the centripetal Reach where Paul going to Rome can reach so many more Gentiles because they're coming there like they were centuries ago coming to Jerusalem. Now they're coming to Rome. And so Paul is going to end up in the place where he can touch the most Gentiles with the least effort, which I think is part of God's design and how this all happened. But that's just my personal opinion. Biblically, it's not stated that way.
0: Well, it makes sense to me. Uh, Let's read the rest of our text for today through 30 because the way they react is it's just it's obscene in a way you know just in the sense that it's it's like it's childish is the word let's read it 22 through 29 up to this word they listened to him but then they raised their voices and they said away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, "'Is it lawful for you to flog a man "'who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned?' And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and he said to him, "'What are you about to do? "'This man's a Roman citizen.' So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, well, I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. All right. So I, I laughed a little bit in the middle of that because I, I getting this vision that Paul knows his rights. And Mm -hmm. he waits. He doesn't, he sees them grabbing him. He knows that they can't make heads or tails because of the crowd. The Jewish crowd is reacting just crazy. So he knows that the Romans are going to basically try to beat some confession out of him, but he doesn't say anything. He lets them be brought into the barracks. He lets them hear about the flogging. He lets them stretch him out for the whips. And then maybe I'm not reading it right. Right. But I just get the sense that he nonchalantly turns and he's stretched out and he goes, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, I-, I didn't know it was legal to beat a Roman citizen. And then he throws everybody into a hissy fit. Uh, why, why does Paul not evoke this sooner? He could have saved himself a lot of trouble. Well, you're right. He could have. And it gets back to what I was
1: talking about earlier. His objective was not to defend himself it was to speak the word of truth to more people. And and I think part of what he is doing is he is saying, you're making hasty judgments without knowing all the facts, just as the crowd outside has done. And in one sense, he's he's using this as a, a way to remind the, the tribune and, and the Romans in, in Jerusalem that they don't always have all the details they need to have before they take action, which is true for you and me as well. I think the other side of it is that, He's been yelled at, and basically what the, the crowd has said is he doesn't deserve to live because he wants to share the love of God with other people. Now, that's not how they see it, but that's that's the, the truth. And this is Satan's way of saying, I must destroy the message. And if I cannot kill the message, I will kill as many messengers as I can possibly kill. And Paul knows that he is under the Lord's protection, and he has had... He's had visions and revealed from God that he will take the word to certain places. And he doesn't tell us exactly when he's had these visions or this message from God. So I suspect, without being able to identify specifically where, that Paul himself knows that this is not how he will die, therefore he need not worry. What he is doing is he is using each moment to speak to a smaller group of people as to the reasonableness of his I'm going to use the word argument or presentation and the unreasonableness of the reaction against it. And the best way to have that happen is to have the the Roman soldiers stop and ask, why isn't this man insisting on his rights as a Roman? What's more important to him than being immediately released? Something's going on. And as you mentioned, the, the tribune thought he could beat a confession out of him or some kind of explanation. And Paul could have immediately given the explanation, They're opposed to me because I tell them that the the word of God is meant for more than the nation of Israel. But that wouldn't have meant a thing to the tribune at that point in time. How a Roman citizen reacts in the centurion's statement, I bought this. It was valuable enough to pay a great amount of money for. And Paul is saying, what I have comes by birth, and therefore I value it, but I'm also part of the people of Israel as he probably heard him say, I was from the tribe of Benjamin, educated in this city, etc." So that Paul's basically saying, I'm not using a term that he uses, but he, he's saying, I'm a dual citizen. I have the ability to be in both the people of Israel, the, the community of the Judean culture, and understand it, know it, and the Roman culture and understand it, know it, speaking Greek, as, as the Tribune obviously was surprised at earlier. And this is undoubtedly why the Lord calls Saul now, we call him Paul To be an ambassador to the Gentiles He was a citizen of both worlds And could operate as such In a way that allowed him To hear and communicate To the needs of, of those he witnessed to And one of the things he's doing to the Roman soldiers As the, the centurion mentions He's focusing on the fact that Citizenship is not immediately attached To Roman soldier duty It has to be earned or purchased And, you know, it's one of the things that We we see throughout the history of the Roman Empire is how one becomes a citizen is a big deal because it brings with it rights and privileges. How you and I became part of the body of Christ, citizens of heaven, is also a big deal, but it can't be bought. It's all gift. And the Lord grants it to us for his sake and for the name of Jesus. And Saul himself, now Paul, knows that he's been given the gift of new birth into the family of God in a way that he couldn't get it any other way. And so, as he's talking with this Roman centurion, he's actually introducing the topic of the citizenship of heaven, which is, again, another theme he gets into, especially in his epistles.
0: I think that's an interesting connection because, you know, we spoke earlier, and I've mentioned this on different episodes about, you know, when the American ideal of citizenship is that we evoke our rights or invoke our rights anytime that we, we even meet up with the most minor inconvenience. And yet we see Paul's example of not um, invoking his rights unless, of course, as you've said a number of times during this program, it's for the benefit of someone else. And here, um, he certainly benefits from not continuing to get beaten. But his his evoke, invoking his own citizenship really is to serve the purpose of yet having more people to proclaim the word of god to um but yeah i guess this this guy thinks that he he looks too poor or unconnected to be able to have a citizenship but paul says he's a citizen by birth and i never really considered the i guess parallel it shows to the being the birthright of faith and citizenship in the new heavens and new earth and you make a great point about being dual citizens so you know how how can we today continue to follow in the footsteps of paul of discerning how and when to use our citizenship, whether it be in the kingdom of God or in, I guess, uh, whatever country we're a part of?
1: Well, I I reflect on this in in several ways, sometimes in Bible study, sometimes in, in sermons as well, that we didn't choose God, God chose us, and we don't get to choose our own family members. They're ours by birth. We don't choose members of the, of the body of Christ. God chooses them. And Christ considered every single one of us valuable enough to go to hell for. Jesus literally was abandoned by the Father for every human on the planet. If God sees each one as that valuable, how can we see them as any less valuable? And so we need to, as one of my fellow pastors once put it, look at everyone through our relationship with Jesus Christ and as the Apostle Peter says, we once considered you know, Christ as, as another human, but now we look at him differently, and, and realizing that this is what you and I are called to do, use our relationship with God as gift to serve others. This is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second commandment, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. It's really what Paul is doing here in this setting, and it's how you and I then, show love to others, and it's tough to do because I'm a selfish human being, and I want my own way. And so the Holy Spirit has to knock me around every once in a while and wake me up to show me that this is how it's done. Then, of course, the Word of God continues to enable us to do that, and strengthen us, and, and the gift of the Lord's Supper and our baptism, all of which, again, gets back to that word gift. As long as we keep focused on the fact that it's all gift and you can't ever give it away and lose it, you can only hoard it and lose it. So we keep giving it away, and that's how we keep it. And this serving of others with the giving of the gift uh, that God's granted to us. That's that's really why we're here on this planet.
0: Well, that's where we'll have to end it this morning. Thank you so much to my guest, the Reverend Stephen Tice. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Once again, Pastor, thanks for being on the show.
1: Thank you. It was my pleasure, and I hope you enjoyed the cool evenings in Minnesota. <laughs> Just,
0: I'll do, do my best. Well, folks, uh, join us on Monday as we continue this conversation with Acts 22, 22, verse 30. Pardon me. Um, We'll join uh, the Reverend Dr. Lucas Woodford, president of the Minnesota South District, who's going to lead us through that text. Well, until then, we will see you tomorrow. And we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.